So I have, I have a special uh, relative in my life, a cousin who's a couple years older than I. Her name's Christine, and uh, she uh, has Down syndrome. And uh, we uh, grew up kind of together during holidays, and uh, we grew up kind of spending a lot of time around each other. Um, and my family, because Christine came into the family, with all, with all of her challenges, with all the challenges that Down syndrome brings with it, um, and, and the hardships that she's endured through her life, uh, she has become like the joy of our family. Like her, her presence is an unwavering joy in our midst. And uh, because of, because of uh, I think, her in our family and, and uh, who she is, my family for a long time, I mean, as far back as I could remember, spent every summer um, kind of going to Special Olympics. This is like, kind of like, this is the Olympic season, right? They let the torches lit, the games are on, happening over in South Korea. But I'm not thinking about those Olympics where you're going for, you're the best in the world, you're going to go for the highest. This morning I'm thinking about Special Olympics. And it's the most fun event that you can imagine if you've never been to one. Uh, it was, uh, so she was in gymnastics and uh, all sorts of things. She lived up in Chicago, I lived three hours away. So we, we, we volunteered every summer at the annual Special Olympics Games in our hometown. And as a volunteer, you know, I'm like a nine-year-old kid volunteering for these these Olympics, and I mean, you got all sorts of things. You know, you like you go out in the field and, and uh, you kind of retrieve the softball throws. You kind of th- softball throw and you throw it back, and um, and then you um, I don't know, like you can be on the the edges, writing people's times down as they cross the finish line. Uh, what struck me most after years and years and years of being part of this community is the um, unashamed joy at just getting to live life. Like this, this deep contentment in getting to be out and active. And my favorite moments are, uh, were and have been watching folks cross the finish line, whatever place they're in, and acting as if they've just like, won the actual Olympics. I mean, just unashamed um, contentment in life. And then you get, uh, the way they do the award stands is that you, know, you have first place and they'll give a blue ribbon and second and third. But has ever, however many people participated, they all, have, they all line up. And one by one, everyone gets their like 14th place ribbon. And this person, like, if they, when they get their 14th place ribbon, they act as if they've won the lottery. You know, like, oh, yeah! And it's like the best thing that they've ever, ever happened to them. And I think what, what folks with Down syndrome, the gift that they have is this unashamed contentment in life, this unashamed ability that no matter what place they come in and no matter what life is, has given them, they've got this joy and this, um, this contentment, I guess is the best way to say it. And uh, Cousin Christine, she, she was actually really good at gymnastics, and so she made it to the World Special Olympics in 1999, I think it was. And we were out there at the World Special Olympics trading pins. And Anyway, if, if you guys ever get a chance to do some stuff with Special Olympics, I would really, um, really suggest it. Uh, because ultimately, it's, nothing, it's not about the greatest. It's not about being the best or the greatest. It's about the joy of just having a life to live. You know, and as, and as I think about Jesus, as we, as we um, kind of go into his teachings this morning... Um, you know, we've been talking about his teachings, we've been talking about uh, kind of what he has to teach us and how he has to guide us in this, 
in this confusing world. And I've been talking that Jesus is both a teacher and a rabbi. And the, the reason why I'm stressing the, the, the dual characteristics of Jesus as teacher and rabbi is because when Jesus, when we get to some of Jesus' harder teachings like we get to today, the ones that make us really squirm, the ones that make us, may make us feel like, you know what, does he even have an idea of what my life is like? Because if I, if I listened to his teachings and he had any idea how many responsibilities I had and how many sorrows I have, is, am, I, is, am, I just not, am I not doing enough? Am I, you know, like, does he want me just to like, do more? Does he, so if we don't understand that he's a healer and we get to some of these hard teachings, we miss the, we miss the fact that uh, all of these hard teachings are about him being for us. That him trying to take us from the things that choke us in this life and to free us from the things that choke us and to bring us into abundant freedom in full life. And so, um, you know, I love, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his, in his great book, Mere Christianity. I love this part. He says, um, he says, what about this teaching, this central teaching of Jesus? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we can smooth that off if we want, but there's no smoothing off those hard edges. And Jesus, when he's talking about being perfect there, he's not talking about making mistakes. He's talking about the ability to love your enemy. The rain, he says, falls on the just and the unjust. God's mercy and grace fall on the just and the unjust. So God loves the just and loves, the, loves his enemies. So be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> Poor child. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And, Jesus, and, and uh, C.S. Lewis says, here's the thing. Um, you, may, you may not understand this, and, and, and the, if you misunderstand Jesus as a healer, uh, as well as a teacher, um, you'll, you'll miss the fact that um, You'll think that Jesus is saying, like, unless you're perfect, unless you become perfect, I'm not going to help you. Like, I don't want to deal with you unless you're perfect people. Like, that's, that's not what he's talking about. That's not what's happening. Uh, Lewis says that uh, the only thing that Jesus promises to help us with is to become perfect. And you may want something less for your life, but he's not going to give you anything less. So that's the point. Jesus is with you and teaching you and he's our guide and he's going to teach us hard things so he can pull us out of the ways that we get caught up in, in patterns that are less than love, less than uh, fruitful, and less than healing for our lives. So Jesus is a healer and a teacher. And, and, and we've been getting into some of these teachings, particularly as we're remembering that uh, April 1st is Easter. It's coming around the corner quick. Uh, Easter's coming quick. And actually, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday for those of you who follow the church calendar. We're just beginning to start Lent, which is the journey with Jesus uh, from these places of his teaching all the way to the cross. So as, as, as we, we get into some of his teachings, we remember that we're doing so in the back of our mind, remembering that we are on our way, journeying with him to the cross. We're, we're going to get there soon. Uh, his, his moment of, of, of uh, deepest suffering. So I say that because uh, we're angling in this teaching here towards this, or we've, we've come into this teaching angling towards Easter with this teaching about 
the different types of soils. We talked that about, about two weeks ago. And if, you, if you're new here and if you've missed any of these sermons, this is in a series. And this particular sermon actually is part two of last week's. So if you've missed last week's and you want to catch up, you can find it online. Where at the beginning, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the cares, the riches, and the worries, Jesus said, are like thorns that grow up and choke us. Um, and, and we talked about that, uh, this choking that Jesus wants us to, to, to think about and, and how discontent, being constantly discontented by life is kind of how that translates today. And we, we all want to be freed to be disciples. We want to be freed to make a difference in the world, to be fruitful, to, um, to be making other disciples. And yet the discontents of this life cares, the riches and the pleasures can choke us out. And last week we talked about the, the um, yeah, the the desire to be the greatest and to have the greatest and all of the ways that we desire the greatest things in this world and how much time and energy that takes and when we get lost in the greatest mentality that these, uh, this chokes us as well, like these thorns. Um, and I've talked about last week a little bit, and I'm going to just re- rehash this this morning a little bit, is uh, consumerism. Consumerism is the word that we give to what this is, what Jesus was talking about in the ancient world. Consumerism is a choking way of life. And here's how it goes. Consumerism is a, is a way of life that sees life as an endless number of choices between products. So it teaches us that life is just all sorts of products that we can buy and choose from. And the aim, the aim of this way of being is to get at our, get at our desires, get us desiring different products desiring different things. It's a, a desiring way of life. And what it results in, what consumerism results in if we participate in it, is a true feeling of a constant discontent. And that what it teaches us is that, that we live in a cycle, that if you have a product and it fails you, you just move on to the next one. You discard it, you give it back to the store, or you move on. And in those moments where we feel empty, as we do a lot in life, when we feel that gnawing emptiness that can creep up inside of us, it teaches us to fill it with something bigger and better. Uh, and again, this is, this is more than just, I'm not talking about materialism and waste, because you could be someone who gives away lo- all, all sorts of things that you own, but if you haven't dealt with the deeper Patterns of consumerism, you're just going to keep getting the new. The bigger, the better, give away the old. Give the, see how that works? So it's not just about getting rid of stuff. It's about a cycle. Now, consumerism has a couple big problems, in case you, in case you don't know. First of all, if life, is, um, if life is about product, and everything is about product, then we begin finding our identities in the products we have. The clothes we wear, the brands we wear, the types of food we eat. And you go out, you know, you see this in the mall. You walk through the mall, and all of these giant pictures of abnormally large, tall, like 10-foot people having a great time in their Abercrombie clothes or whatever. You know, like you're, you're not just buying Abercrombie, you're buying popularity or whatever. I mean, um, that, that's how this works. Your, your identity is, is placed in it. And if that's the way the world works, if that's the way the reality is, then for the first time in history, there's no place in society for poor people because they can't participate. 
They can't buy, they can't get in the cycle. So what, what place do they have? But not only this, the, the real problem for Christians is that consumerism moves in the completely opposite direction than the teachings of Jesus. So here it is. Consumerism teaches us that you are here on this earth to be served. A product is going to serve you. Where Jesus is like, you're here to be a servant. And this is how this begins to unravel for us. If your, if your relationships fail, well, they're just another product that's failed you, so you just move on. Where Jesus is like, forgive 70 times 7. Okay? Or how about if the church fails you or doesn't go the way you want it to? Well, it's just another product. You just move on to a different one. Rather than trying to stay and reform maybe the dysfunctions in the church that you're in. Or how about this? And this is where it gets most sad to me or most dangerous, that consumerism, what it does to people is it, it, it teaches them to treat God ultimately as a product. If God fails me somehow, if, if, he, if he doesn't live up to his, what I think is his end of the deal, then I can, I can just find a new God. And you see that happening all over the place. Rather than the faithfulness which, God, which Jesus wants us to have um, to the Father. So consumerism, I mean, this, this really does, it, it should, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it, it touches each one of us, including myself, at the heart, because it's the culture we live in, it's the gas chamber that, we, that produces the air we breathe, it's the world we live in, and it teaches us that unless we're on to the next and best and biggest thing, then our identity is somehow, uh, I don't know, misplaced. So... This is, this is why I want to teach about this ultimately because we're heading what, to the cross. We're heading to Jesus' whole way of, of, of showing us what this looks like in action to give his life for many. Uh, and he teaches us to walk that same road. And so, uh, you know, uh, you, can, you can go, Jesus teaches about a lot of things, about relationships, about money, and there's not enough time and not enough weeks in the year to talk about all his teachings uh, but we're particularly talking about his teaching, his, his central teaching on selfless love and how he demonstrates it for us. So here's the story. We're in uh, Mark chapter 10. I don't know if you noticed this. I don't usually put the chapter and the verse numbers up there. I'm not just being lazy. I mean, there are times I'm being lazy. I try to yeah, I get past those. But... Um, I do, it, I, do it, I do it so we remember that this is not just, not just a story. This, is, this happened. This is, this is real. This is talking about what really happened. And so sometimes the, the greater effect is if we can't pin it down, we just remember it's a story. So anyway, a little aside there. So here's Mark 10. He took the 12, his disciples aside again, and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's how he talks about himself, will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. After three days, he will rise again. James and John, as if they completely missed what Jesus just said, the sons of Zebedee came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus, the product. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, well, okay, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand 
and one at your left in your glory. When, you, when you're king of this world as you're promising to be, we want you to, uh, to grant us to be secretaries of state or whatever. And uh, they're wanting the biggest and the best. They're wanting the best place with the most privileges. That's, that's, that's what we have to be careful of. But Jesus said to them, okay, you're not understanding here, guys. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In three weeks' time, we're going to have a baptism in here. A bunch of people doing baptisms, dedication. And, part, and we're going to talk about, in the next couple of weeks, Jesus' own baptism. Going back a little bit in the story. To remember that when Jesus talks about baptism and was baptized, this is an event which is so much bigger than just getting washed. That this, for him, baptism is a whole journey of suffering. That ultimate, he talks about the cross as his ultimate baptism. So are you going to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, again, as if they didn't quite understand themselves. Yeah, I guess. We could do that. And again, they, they are able because um, James, James gets beheaded four years later at the same festival. Um, but then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is those for whom it has been prepared. And we think about all of the people in our life who've gone through suffering and great suffering. And, and, and as their suffering is linked up to Jesus, it's as if their baptism, is their, their, what they're going through, their suffering, is not meaningless, but it's like a baptism with Jesus. That, that deep intimate connection, the suffering that helps us to know the cross in his way. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. Because <laughs> they're like, okay, so you're power mongering now? Like, what is this? I thought we were following Jesus. So Jesus called them all and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those who they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So basically the point is this. This is what I'm hoping that we recognize this morning. That Jesus is asking us to be slaves and servants. Like, it's not like he's giving us an option. It's not like he's saying, as consumerism would say, you're here to be served. Everything is here to serve your interests, to serve your desires. Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to do things in my way, it's going to feel like servanthood and slavery. And those are two different words in the Greek. That's why I underlined them there. Uh, Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, which is to say uh, someone who naturally serves others. When they see something that needs to happen, they go ahead and do it. When they, uh, when they see a hard thing that someone doesn't want to do, they step in. Someone who has the disposition of a servant. That's the first one. But then Jesus is like, if, if you're not understanding what this means, I'm going to go a little deeper. And he says, whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. And that's stronger language. That is in bondage language. That is the, the, the image of someone who is forcibly... Um, 
put in, in bondage beyond their will. Now, Jesus isn't saying, go and be a slave, like, literally. He's not saying, like, go and find your way into servanthood like that. But I think what he's saying is this. Um, what, what following him is going to feel like, if we're doing it well, in every part of our life, it's going to feel like a servanthood and slavery. And that's the exact opposite of what our culture teaches us we are and what we need to be. Um, Again, C.S. Lewis, I love this, um, talks about when something inside of you whispers that there's something more. When that great emptiness comes inside of you and says, there's something more to this life you're missing out on. Our natural inclination and in the culture we live in is to go fill that up and to go find something to fill that. Where Jesus' way says that if, when that something whispers inside of you that there should be something more to life, the only way out to fill that is to serve and be a slave. And Jesus, Jesus talks about this in another way. And this is, I mean, he breaks into human, human wisdom and just turns it on its head. You remember the place where Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship? He says, if any one of you would want to save your life, this is consumeristic language. Do you, wanna, you want to save your life? You've got to lose it. And if anyone wants to lose his life, and this is the harder part, go ahead and clamor by trying to save it. This is hard teaching. This is so hard on us because this, this cuts against the grain of everything that's inside of us. Jesus wants us to be servants. He wants us to be slaves uh, to him, to, to the Father, uh, in a life of service. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Uh, I just, I just want to stress this. I, I mean, I'm saying this. I want to I say it as clearly as possible, that the life of discipleship Jesus has created involves us following his pattern of being a servant. It's nothing else than following his way. And, um, and his disciples faithfully did after he was raised. So there's a few, uh, okay, I think, the, I mean, I don't, I don't have to keep on going. Jesus is clear enough. Uh, but I want to help for the rest of the time today just unpack this a little bit. Like, okay, so if that's the reality, if that's Jesus' teaching, like, what do we do? What does that look like in this day and age in your life with the realities that you're living through? I'm going to come at this and try to get to some real practicalities here. Uh, but I'm going to start with some maxims. Maxims are sayings that help us understand wisdom. This is from John of the Cross, 15th century writer, great Christian writer, John of the Cross. He, he defined his own name by the cross, by, by the suffering. So endeavor to remain always in the presence of God, either God's real presence or even if you have to imagine it, or unitive, insofar as it is permitted by your life. The only way to get at this, he's saying, and this is part of the answer to how do we do this, is we've got to immerse ourselves in God's presence. Only he can allow us and teach us to do these things and, and continue to guide us away from our wayward heart. Uh, endeavor to remain always in the presence of God. As, as insofar, I love this qualification because this is helpful, insofar as it is permitted by your life. In all things, both high and low, let God be your goal. For in no other way will you grow in character and righteousness. If your bank account is your goal, if the greatest 
love relationship is your goal, if fame is your goal, what, what, what else could be your goal? If any of that's your goal, uh, there's, no, there's no, no, no way you're going to grow in character and righteousness. Let God be your goal. In he- and this, this is so straightforward. In heaven and on earth, always the lowest place in office. I mean, in your life, in your relationships, in your workplaces, in your schools, whatever, in whatever place you find yourself, seek the lowest. Seek the least office. Um, don't be clamoring after leadership. Don't be clamoring after power. Jesus' way always seeks the lowest. Pay no attention to the affairs of others, whether they be good or bad, for besides the danger of sin, this is a cause of distractions and a lack of spirit. This is the choking power of Facebook. <laughs> Pay no attention to the affairs of others. With John of the Cross. I, I want to like start off John of the Cross, real Facebook account with nothing on it. Um, it's a da- there's a danger of sin and choking that happens. And I think we, we all know that. Um, so he, here we're going to get to this. Um, few ideas here. Service, simplicity, vows of poverty, 888, workplace, sleep, and mission. I'm going to unpack this for us here quick. The, the point that Jesus is making, I believe, is that your life, every one of us, your life is to be consumed with mission. It's how we find our way out of being choked by thorns and into being a productive, fruitful person. Our life is to be consumed by mission. But don't hear me wrong, I'm, I'm not anywhere close at this point to talking about asking any of you to serve more at grassroots. Do more at church. That's a message for another day and I'll get there. Um, that's not what I'm saying today. I'm talking about your life. The life that you live, the situations you find yourself in. Your life is meant to be consumed with mission. Also, don't hear me wrong, I'm not talking about 16 hours of grueling service a day. Especially if you have kids. I mean, that's probably what life is, right? With kids. 16 hours of grueling service. I've been telling my kids, and I'm sure this is abusive to some degree, I've been saying, I think my new definition of children are people with, helpless people with endless needs. <laughs> they don't like that. They don't like when you say that. That's what it can feel like. I'm not, talk, I'm not talking about giving up all of your responsibilities to go find yourself in 16 hours a day of grueling service. Someone once said, this 888 principle is good. Eight hours of work, eight hours of play, eight hours of sleep. That's how life can find its balance. And I haven't reached that yet. I haven't figured that out. Especially the play part. I mean, I'm good at the eight hours of sleeping thing. Um, but usually, it's usually like, maybe like a tenth of an hour of play and they're 16 hours of work. I don't know about you, but that's how it works for me. Um, so I think part, part, of the, part of the issue here and part of getting untangled from the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life is to learn to see f- how close we can get to this rhythm. Uh, can you find eight hours a day to play? Maybe. But here's the thing. I think that many people are asking this question. I'm overstretched in my responsibilities. I'm fitting my hobbies in. And then there's my life drama, all all the drama of my life. I don't feel like I have any space left for mission. Real space left to do service, extra service for God. 
Um, and, and part of the, the way the consumeristic cultures work, it, it leads us into an old way of life which is called Epicureanism. It's an old Greek philosophy which says the best way to live your life is to get the best things in life and find your way to a garden or a park with a couple of your closest friends. And that's all you really need. That's the good life. That's, and that's not Christianity. But um, that's how... That's, that's how it works. So St. Paul works against Epicureanism. He talks against it. Remember when he was talking about um, uh, fatalism, he says the, the mantra of Epicureanism is, let's eat, let's drink, for tomorrow we die. Just eat some good food, drink some good wine, because we're going to die tomorrow. That's all, we've, that's all we can do in this world. Or when he says, whatever I eat, on the opposite side, he says, and this is 2 Corinthians, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. He's saying your life is to be consumed by mission. Or how about this, therefore, this is 1 Corinthians 15, therefore my uh, beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. Always excelling in the work, always excelling in the work of the Lord. He's saying your life is to be consumed with mission. So if you're working, if you're at your eight hours of work, your question is, how can I be a servant? How can I be constantly someone who is serving at work? What does that look like for you? What are the tasks in your life that you'd rather other people do? What are the things that, ways that you can grow in always being a servant to those around you? Or how about your eight hours of play, your hobbies, your extracurriculars, the question always has to be, how can I invite others who don't have access to this into my time of play? Or eight hours of sleep. I don't think we can do mission in sleep. It doesn't work that way. If that's the time, you can be alone. If you're busy to, to think missionally about your work and your play, uh, you have to ask the question about choking. If you're too busy, if you can't quite get to that place where you're serving in your work and in your, in your, uh, your, your play, uh, you have to ask yourself, where have I been? Am I giving myself over to the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life? If I feel too burnt out before I even begin doing these things, what am I investing in? What kind of the biggest and best am I, am I having rather than trying to be content with what I have? So if you're exhausted and not being fruitful, you've got to ask that. What's choking me and how can I get it out? How can I give it away? Last, last verse from Paul here. I forget if I put this up. No. Last verse is Philippians. Remember, and listen to this. Now, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Paul's talking to some people who he has had some issues with. He, do, he doesn't let them pay him to be their pastor because they'll know he'll, they'll hold it over his head. Um, so he says, Now I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have revived your concern for me. I'm not saying this out of my need, for I have learned to be content regardless of my circumstances. I know how to live humbly, and I know how to abound. I'm accustomed to any and every situation. This is how I think we should all become. He says, even though I've been hungry, I've gone without food, I've been filled. And when I've had real need, in my need I feel like I have plenty. That's when I come in fourth place, 14th place in life. I'm jumping up and down just because 
I'm alive. That's contentment, is what Paul is saying. Real contentment. So practically, how, how does this work? Just a few ideas before we close here. Pray for people. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you take time to pray for people? When I pray, oh, and by the way, a little caveat, I'm really bad at being a servant. <laughs> like, I, my, I've, got, I've got a couple of friends who, like, when, when we're camping, like, they're always doing stuff, and I'm, like, on my, on my uh, hammock, you know, like, they're cooking and firing, building fire and all that, and I, my tendency is just to go, oh, if you're going to do it, I'll let you do it. Like, that, they just have that built into them. Uh, this, is, this is hard for me to think, okay, I should, I should uh, serve. So anyway, here's the thing. Um, when, you pray for, when I pray for people, oftentimes I'm praying, God, it's been a hard day. Give me calm. Give me peace. Uh, yeah, just uh, thank, you for, thank you for this food. Amen. Um, <laughs> do you pray for other people? When you pray, pray for other people. Legitimately take time and think about the people in your life who need prayer for something and pray for them. That's being a servant. Or rejoicing in their successes. How hard is it sometimes to rejoice when other people are successful? And it is, how hard it is to take the, the back seat when life is going well for them and not for us. Uh, giving. Now this is, I want to say a lot about this, but um, giving in your life. Uh, a servant, uh, okay, so... Um, I think there's a, a, a thrift store in town that's doing a thing for Lent where you give 40 things each day to them. Like, yeah, go through your house, find things that you need to get rid of, give away. That's, that's good. But I wonder if we could find the newest things that we have, the best things that we have, and give them away and use the second hand. That's hard. Or, or, or how about this? Um, do you have a vacation plan this year? What if you gave that vacation to someone who couldn't go on vacation? What is it to be last and to actually serve other people in our sharing of our material things? I love to share tools. I will keep your tool at my house for a year if you let me. <laughs> you got to be careful with that. If you, um, I, I, don't buy, I don't really buy new tools. I just like to, to share your tools. It's an, it's an easy thing to do. You don't have to get new ones. Or, or where are you investing in the best in the new products? Now, sometimes we need to get the best in the new in order to have something for 20 years rather than something that breaks in two. Okay, don't get me wrong there. Quality is good. Uh, but are we choked by this? Does this? Are we choked in a pattern of getting the newest and the best? Coldest night of the year is coming up. Um, I've never participated. I was like, my, my daughter heard about it yesterday. She's like, can I walk? Yeah, you can. Like, I really don't want to, but you can. Um, but be part of Team Green this year. Uh, it's, uh, it's a fundraiser thing, and it's, it's aimed at not only helping us remember that there are people sleeping out in this weather, but actually contributing to an organization who's doing something about it. So um, if, if you don't know how to become part of Team Green, I think it's next weekend. Is it next weekend or two weekends? Uh, coldest night of the year. I feel like every night has been the coldest night of the year. Um, be, be part of that. Join the crew. Let's go out and, and walk together and, and raise some money. Uh, and then finally, I think it's just this. It's checking your investments. What are the things in life that you're investing in? Where do you give your time, energy, money, strength? And is it leaving you more discontent or not? Um, 
or if you find yourself constantly discontented about what you have or your relationships. If you don't have the best marriage, I mean, it's good to have a good marriage, don't get me wrong, but if you don't have an epic marriage, can you be content with that? Um, if, you, if, you, if you have a job, but it's not the best job, can you be content with that? Uh, or are these things constantly leading you to just being discontent? Um, check your investments. I think that's, that's enough of that. Well, we're going to walk into Jesus' own baptism in the next two weeks. Because it's, what's interesting about Jesus' baptism is that he gets baptized and, and then he goes straight to the desert for 40 days, fasting and being tempted. So this is straight down the fairway of what we're talking about. His baptism and his temptation are put together as one experience, which is going to teach him what his ultimate destiny will be, which is to suffer um, for us. But as he, as he talks about baptism, and before, before he goes to the cross, he gets with his disciples and has this last supper, which is what we're doing here. We do this every week, in case you don't know. Uh, Jesus, uh, before he died, had a last meal. And during his last meal, he uh, took a piece of bread, a loaf of bread, and broke it as to symbolize the broken body he was about to have. And he uh, poured out wine in order to symbolize the shedding of his blood, the giving of him, the ultimate service to humanity. To free us from our selfishness, to free us from the patterns of self-service, and to free us to become servants of all. So he says, every time you gather, take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice, here, here the juice, and, um, and take it inside of you as just a, a further commitment, as a way to take, take it in. Well, during that meal, he also did something very powerful. He like, got stripped down to his under- underwear. He took a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. And he told them to do the same for others. And what I think the point, I think his point is this. His point in doing this um, most profound thing is to say uh, the only way out of being choked by life and and wooed into the choking consumerisms of life is to ask how in every circumstance that you're in that you can be a servant. You can be someone who's washing the dirtiest places off of people. But it's also this. It's uh, not just washing the dirtiest places off of people, but helping them to understand that they are beloved. Okay, we'll get that into this next week. God's voice comes at the baptism and says to Jesus, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And these are the same words that are spoken over you and me in all of our brokenness, in all of our failing, in all of our selfishness. Jesus isn't asking you to feel guilty because You've been trying so hard, but you have to try a little harder. It's not what this is about. This is freeing you up to become the person who you are meant to be. And in the midst of it, speaking the baptismal words, which I'll speak over each one of you before you come up today. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. And with you, he is well pleased. So I'd invite you this morning to come and partake in the the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the juice once again, uh, to, to wash that baptismal blessing over you, as well as for you to respond and give back to God any prayers that you'd have. So,
Uh, my friends, this table is set once again, and everybody here is welcome.